If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 50? Isaiah 50. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, uh, it's near the middle of your Bible. If you head to Psalms and you go right, you'll find the book of Isaiah. And we're in chapter 50 of the 66 chapters in Isaiah. Uh, The question, what do you want to be when you grow up, has been asked a lot throughout the years, probably I don't know for how long, but countless years, I would think. And as kids get older and they start to settle into a, a career choice, they, they often will find kind of a hero in that field, someone who's, who's doing what they want to do that they can aspire to, to be like. In fact, when you think about like a good college program, they usually require you not to just learn things from books, but then also to go and to shadow someone who's in that chosen profession. Just imagine if you had a chosen the, the career that you wanted and you found the perfect example of someone in that career and then you had the chance to go and learn from them and just shadow them and watch what they've done. I asked some of the kids or asked parents to ask kids what they wanted to be when they grew up and I got some really good answers. Um, things like own and run a horse ranch and I thought, well, wouldn't that be great if you could find someone who owned and ran a horse ranch and you just watch them. They have the most beautiful one, and you could learn from them. A couple people said they wanted to be an author. A couple people said they wanted to be a firefighter. Two people, you could find someone who's really good at it, and you could walk in their steps. I heard scientist and doctor, a gymnast, or a, a painter. All of those, you could find the greatest painter, the greatest gymnast or scientist, and, and learn from them. I even heard a ninja. I don't know any ninjas, but I'm sure if you found a ninja, you could learn from them. Uh, Also a preschool teacher, an architect, an interior designer. Um, I know some people even know the person that they want to learn from. If they could find that person, they would say, yeah, I'd go and just learn from them. Well, if you've been transformed by Jesus, then even more than your career aspirations, what you long to be is a disciple to be a a consistent and effective follower of the Lord, to follow his ways day in and day out for the rest of your life. And if that's true, then then who should you follow? Who should you shadow? Who, Who might you learn from and look to if you desire to know what it means to walk deeply and consistently, consistently with the Lord? Who would you want to imitate in your quest for godliness and growth? Well, there's lots of examples in the scriptures. There's examples from the lives in our church, people who are walking with the Lord. But Isaiah 50 helps us see, maybe just reminds us of the fact that Jesus, in fact, is the perfect disciple. He is the perfect follower of his, follower, of his father. And in that perfection, he reveals that only he can bring us salvation through his perfect life, But he also reveals that when we trust in his perfect life and in his death on our behalf, and when we're then filled with his spirit, we can walk in step with Jesus and with the spirit. We can look in the mirror of his word and see if we are imaging Jesus, the suffering servant in our lives. And so Isaiah 50 verses four through 11, the third servant song teaches us this, Jesus is the perfect disciple. Trust in him and follow his steps. Jesus is the perfect disciple. Trust in him and follow in his steps. 
to be a disciple of the Lord is to be a disciple of Jesus, which of course makes sense. And it's right to think about being a disciple of Jesus. But I also think just a new thought for me is to think about Jesus being a disciple. What a wonderful gift from the Lord that he has sent Jesus to show us in real and practical ways what it actually looks like to follow him. And not only that, but, but to reveal who he would, he would be, even in prophecies like the one we find here in Isaiah 50. We've not been left without an example or a description of just what faithfulness to the Lord looks like because Jesus is the perfect disciple and we're called to trust in him and follow in his steps. Now, before we jump into this passage, let me give you a few structural notes, if that's okay. You can tune out if you want from this and then tune back in in, the middle, in a minute, but I find this stuff helpful. Um, as with the previous servant songs, we find with this song that first, this time in verses four through nine, that, that's the song, and then it's followed by commentary. In fact, the title servant is not mentioned in the song itself in verses four through nine, but only in the commentary that's found in verses 10 and 11. That's how we know it's a servant song. But it's clear that, that the servant is the one speaking, and he's speaking actually more to himself than anyone else, but also with an eye to the weary one who is found in verse four. If you're trying to place this third servant song in the wider context of, of the book and in the chapters we've been studying, I'll give you a, a succinct summary from David Jackman. I couldn't say it shorter or better, so I'll just read this. He says, quote, we discover the servant song as an interval in the prolonged debate between God and his people, in which God first defends himself against their baseless accusations, that's what we looked at last Sunday, and then challenges them to wake up and claim by faith the blessings which he is offering to them. We'll see that next Sunday, Lord willing. So with those things in mind, uh, let's read Isaiah 50, verses four through 11. The servant is speaking and he begins in verse four. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Jesus is the perfect disciple. Trust in him and follow in his steps. The title Lord God or Sovereign Lord is the key to this passage. It actually breaks this song up. You see it four times. It breaks it into 
four parts and helps us see the characteristics of Jesus, the servant, as the perfect disciple that calls us to trust in him and challenges us to follow him. And as we walk through these, my hope is that, is that we would be led to worship and led to gratitude for all that Jesus is, led to deeper trust in him, and that we would also be spurred to walk in his ways, that, that the Spirit might highlight one or, or two of these characteristics and begin to work it into our hearts so that we might work alongside him and, and come to know his ways more deeply. And so first, as we sort of paint this portrait of Jesus, the perfect disciple, we see in verse four that the servant is, number one, a well-taught teacher. Verse four, he is a well-taught teacher. The, the servant is again focused on the ministry of words the, the truth of the, and the truth of those words. He speaks about his tongue and his ear. So tongue would have to do with speaking, Ear has to do with listening. Note his ear first in the second part of the verse. It says, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This is said in direct contrast to Israel because unlike Israel, the servant has open ears. You remember that the, the drumbeat of these recent chapters and even the book as a whole is a call to, to listen, to pay attention to the word of the Lord. And yet God's people have ignored him in verse two of this, this same chapter, the Lord came to offer the hope found in turning back to him. But when he shows up, there's no one to listen to him. However, the servant will listen to the Lord. The servant always listens to the Lord. The beginning and end of the verse both indicate that he hears the word of the Lord through the wisdom of those who have been taught. He teaches us that wise people listen to wise people. And the servant pays attention to those who are wise. Now surely this reference to those who are wise is a reference to the scriptures, is to the wisdom of God's word spoken through the prophets and through the authors of the scriptures. But of course all true wisdom is from the Lord. We know this, this listening ear was true of Jesus who, who sought to instruct his followers in the true meaning of the scriptures. He listened to the word of the Lord. He listened to his father. And we find here in verse four that at least one of the reasons that he listened to the word is this. He listened to gain the kind of wisdom that was needed to help the weary. Why did Jesus listen? He listened so he could have wisdom to help those who are weary. His, his wisdom was not for his own pride and promotion. It wasn't for, so that he could win arguments with the Pharisees and humiliate the scribes. His open ears heard the wisdom of God, and then it, it flowed down to his tongue. It's as if his ear was connected to his, his tongue in a way that what he heard allowed him to speak a word that would sustain the weary. Verse four says that having listened to the wise, he was given their tongue. He was given the tongue of the wise because he listened to them, a tongue that spoke truth to the weary and taught the tired how to trust the Lord. We know that the heart of Jesus throughout the Gospels goes out to the weak and to the vulnerable, to the hurting and to the sick, to the outcasts, to the rejected. Everything about his life announces the words of Matthew 11 that we've read recently that we should just keep reading over and over. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus did not use his wisdom to burden the weak. 
but to lift them. I think at the root of all weariness is sin. Whether we're trying to save ourselves by keeping the law and failing and therefore we grow weary or we're trying to find joy in something outside of the Lord and it never satisfies so we become weary or we're just simply wearied by all the fallenness in this world. We just get tired. We know that sin is always wearisome. It's always exhausting to our souls. And Jesus in the gospel offers us the only word that can eternally sustain us. He invites us to turn from our sin and to trust in him so that we might be made new, so that we might be freed from the weariness of sin. He calls us to take on his non-yoke and learn rest and learn trust. Are you weary? What comes to your mind when I ask that question? Are you weary? Jesus longs to sustain you with the word of truth. In Pilgrim's Progress, it was when his journey led him to the cross that Christian's burden fell off his back. And after that happens, he sings a, a song, a song with words that all true followers of Jesus can sing. He says, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in, meaning nothing could ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place this is. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Jesus, Jesus the perfect disciple is a well-taught teacher who offers us the only word of truth that can heal our weary and our sin-sick souls and give us rest. And he calls us to, to then follow him. He calls us to be well-taught teachers like him. Now, uh, I know, there was one person that said they wanted to be a teacher, but we all want to be teachers in some way because we all, want pe we all want to tell people what we think and we want them to listen to us. <laughs> That's universal, I think, in this world. But if we want to walk the path of Jesus, it begins first, not with speaking, but with being well-taught. It doesn't begin with the tongue, it begins with the ear. So do we listen? Are we quick to listen? Are we teachable? Do we, in the words of Proverbs 2, receive God's word, treasure his commandments, make our ears attentive to his wisdom, incline our hearts to understanding, call out for insight, raise our voices for understanding, seek after it like silver, search for it like hidden treasure? Do we do that with God's word? If, if we do, if we seek hard after wisdom in the word like that, the promise is that the Lord will give it to us. The text here says he will awaken our ears. And the way that we search for this wisdom, we're told in verse four, is the way the servant did. Morning by morning. Uh, the way to learn something best is through consistent daily practice, not inconsistent spurts of long practice. 15 minutes of piano practice every day is better than one hour once a week, or so I'm told. Is that true? <laughs> I think that's true. I've learned that in some things, that consistency is better than just wanting to do it all at once and thinking it will be better. And in the con it, it's the constant and consistent intake of Scripture that gives us, the, gives us the wisdom that we need every day. But we should also ask, what is the goal of our listening? What is the goal of our wisdom gaining? 
As we said, the servant wasn't listening so that he could win arguments or gain accolades. Why was he listening? So he could help the weary. So when we come to the scriptures, whether in our personal devotions or on a Sunday or even in just conversation with another believer, we should certainly let the text and the wisdom of others speak to us first. Help us because, because we are weary. But there's also a way in love to be listening on behalf of the weary souls around us. We can be looking to God's word, not in a way that says, boy, do I know someone who needs to hear this, <laughs> but rather in a way that says, I, I know someone who's weary, wearied by, by their sin, wearied by the sin of this world. And this word, this word could just, it could sustain them a little bit more. We can hear that we hear the gospel and, and we long to take it to our world that is so tired and weary and needs rest. Sometimes we don't know what to say to people who are hurting, people who are weary. Or we say the wrong thing. Words that are meant to comfort end up wounding them. I wonder if that could be because we haven't listened well. We, we don't have any words or we don't have the right words because we haven't been consistent students of the word. We've not been diligent in listening to the Lord or we've listened with ears that are ready to condemn others rather than seeking words that would sustain them. Motyer says of this verse, the tongue filled with the appropriate word for ministry is the product of the ear filled with the word of God. I think that's good. The tongue filled with the appropriate word for ministry is the product of the ear filled with the word of God. And such are the ear and the tongue of Jesus. He is a well-taught teacher. So we should worship him as such and learn from him so that we can walk in his steps. Let's move on because that was one verse. Don't worry, the next few points will go a little bit faster. <laughs> next in verses five and six, the perfect disciple is not just a well-taught teacher. He's also an, an obedient servant. An obedient servant in verses five and six. The servant is again listening to the Lord, but he seems to be hearing something different here. It's not wisdom to sustain the weary, but it's rather a call to suffer. And in response to this call, the servant doesn't rebel or turn back from following the Lord. He, he's not like the seed that fell on rocky ground who sprang up and then it withered away in the light of trouble and persecution. No, because the, the trouble and the persecution, pain and death are what the suffering servant is called to do. And so he obeys the father and he enters into it obediently. As we read verse six, how could Jesus not come to our minds? Jesus, who according to John 15, 10, that we read earlier, always kept the Father's commands. Jesus, who according to Hebrews 5, 8, learned obedience through what he suffered. His obedience, the life of Jesus, his obedience wasn't just moral purity, but it was also his devotion to the will of the Father, whatever he called him into. In Gethsemane, as he began to feel the weight of the, the cross on his back and to taste the bitter cup of God's wrath against sin, he still said what? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was well taught in the scriptures and surely he knew Isaiah 50 verse six. And so he knew what was coming, but he, he didn't run from it. After his mock trial in Mark 14, 65, it says, then some of them, the soldiers began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said to him, prophesy. 
And the officers received him with slaps in his face. Matthew 15, 15 tells us he was scourged, that he's, his back was whipped. And after they dressed him in mock royal robes, Mark 15, 19 says they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. In all this, Jesus was an obedient servant. He listened to the word of the Lord and walked in his ways, even when it meant suffering and scourging, mockery and humiliation, pain and death. And even in this, his life, in fact, offers hope to the weary. His suffering for his sin was not, or for his suffering for sin was not for his sin, but for ours, so that all who turn and trust in Christ can be saved from the wrath of God, can be saved from the punishment that we deserve that Jesus took. Christ's suffering was for our salvation, but it's also an example for us to follow. We're called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the servant, and be obedient servants ourselves. We not only listen, we are not only to listen so as to teach others, but we're also to listen so that we can obey the word of the Lord to each of us, even if it means pain and suffering and death. We accept the words that Jesus says about his disciples in Luke 17, seven through 10, words that are counterintuitive in this world. This is what Jesus says. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's part of our heart as followers of Jesus. We are friends, we are children, but we are also servants of God called to be obedient to him. The Lord calls us to follow the servant and the servant suffered. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. How often we're surprised when life is hard. But we're following Jesus. And we just read about how hard his life was. The suffering he calls us into, though, is not permanent, and it's not pointless. It's not permanent because death for the follower of Jesus leads to life. And it's not pointless because, at least in part, it offers a word to sustain the weary. Our suffering can sustain others. We can comfort the afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted, Paul says. Henry Nouwen speaks in a similar way of the ministry of the wounded healer, which could be another lens to look at the servant through. This is what Nouwen writes. He says, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not, how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed? But how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. He says, Jesus is God's wounded healer. Through his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' suffering and death brought joy in life. His humiliation brought glory. His rejection brought a community of love. As followers of Jesus, we can also allow our wounds to bring healing to others. Jesus was a well-taught teacher. He was an obedient servant, even a wounded healer, we might say. 
And third, the servant is revealed to be a trusting son. A trusting son. Some of these are layers, let's be honest. They overlap a little bit. And this trusting and obedience, they flow together. Uh, a trusting son, verses 7 through 8, the obedience of the servant is connected to his trust in the Lord. So verse 7 begins with the confident statement that the Lord will help his servant. Therefore, he will not be disgraced or put to shame, which takes us back to Isaiah 49, 23. It's those who wait on the Lord who are not put to shame. Isaiah 49, 23. It says, then you will know that I am the Lord for those who, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Those who wait, those, those who trust in God will not be put to shame. The servant's hope is in the Lord. Therefore, verse eight, he has no fear of those who would condemn him. He has no dread of his enemies. We've quoted from 1 Peter 2 recently, but it bears repeating, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He's the perfect disciple, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a phrase. He continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In his obedient suffering, he was trusting the Father and he was entrusting himself to the one who is the just judge of the whole world. And as Peter says, he has given us an example. An example so that we would follow him in his steps. When we face physical pain, we trust the heart of the Father. When we face emotional despair and depression, we, we rest in the Lord when we're heartbroken and when we are despairing or we're tired or we're weary, we trust that the sovereign Lord is still sovereign and he's still Lord, even when it doesn't feel like it. All of our pain can be turned to the good of growing our faith because God is the one who ordains it. God is the one who accomplishes all of his will, even in the suffering that we face. And we can trust him. He's the perfect disciple, remember? And so we can know that Jesus, as we've often said, never looks down a difficult path and says, go there. What does he say? Follow me. Anywhere we have our call to go, he's already walked that path and he's simply calling us to follow him and we can trust him that he will be with us. We know that there's pain in this life. Jesus has not promised us a pain-free life, but what he has promised us is that he will never leave us. Now, before we move to, to verse nine, just note in verse seven that the servant says two things. He says both, the Lord helps me, and then he says this phrase, I have set my face like flint. Remember, faith and trust are not passive, they're active. Faith engages our minds to know what is true about, about God. It engages our, our hearts to love who God is to his children, but faith also engages our wills so that we would actively trust the Lord that we would step out in obedience to the Lord, even in the face of pain and persecution and suffering, that we would do what he's called us to do. 
We believe that the, the Lord helps us and then we boldly set our face like flint to do whatever, whatever he calls us to do, to face whatever difficulties might flood into our lives as we walk the path that he's laid out for us. That's what Jesus did. He knew what was coming and he set his face like flint to the cross and endured it for the joy that was set before him. A well-taught teacher, an obedient, wounded, suffering servant, a trusting son, and finally in verse nine, a vindicated king. A vindicated king. <laughs> to be vindicated is to be proven right, especially when other people doubt you. If you've been vindicated in life, you've had this feeling that welled up in words like, I knew I was right, <laughs> or I told you so. That's what vindication feels like maybe to our sinful hearts, but Jesus is vindicated. In verse eight, the, fervent, the servant says that the one who vindicates him is, is near, and here in verse nine, the one who vindicates him has arrived. The servant has faced suffering and, and pain, but it was unjust, it was undeserved. And the question of the verse becomes who, in the face of the just judge, who can declare the servant guilty? And the answer is no one. No one can say he is guilty. All of the accusers of the servant, we're told, are going to wear out like a garment. They're going to wear out like your favorite pair of jeans from high school that eventually became so threadbare that you had to retire them, and you didn't even donate them because there was nothing left of them. <laughs> That's what all the accusers of the servant will be like. In the same way, they, the moths will eat them up. Anyone who contends with the Lord will be as nothing. As we read the Gospels, we see Jesus vindicated, at least in part, right? Even in his trial that was where he's convicted, he's vindicated. Why? Because all of the witnesses are seen as false and all of the charges are unfounded. It's a mock trial. But even more so, Jesus is vindicated in his resurrection. Death could not hold him. It had no right to because Jesus had done nothing wrong. The sting of death is sin and there was no sin in Jesus. So he rose victorious. He was vindicated through his resurrection. And one day he will, turn, he will return triumphant and every knee will bow before him knowing that he is the just judge of the earth. And as his followers in the midst of suffering in this life, we too can say, the one who vindicates me is near. If we're walking with the Lord, we can know that the Lord helps us. And because of Christ, no one can say that we are guilty of eternal death. We can take the words of verse nine on our lips. Behold, the Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? For trusting the Lord, no one can declare us guilty because Christ has suffered for us. We can know that any difficulties that we face in the name of Jesus will, will be made right on the last day. Our brothers and sisters around the world who are mocked and spit upon, who are beaten and who are killed, following in their Savior's steps, they one day will be vindicated. The martyrs are crying out at the feet of Jesus, how long, O Lord? And one day their cries will be heard and God will vindicate them. They will be shown to have been right, to not have been rejected or betrayed or forsaken by the Lord who loved them. All who die in the Lord will be vindicated at the resurrection. Death and hell and sin will not have the final word for the follower of Jesus. Jesus has the final word for us. 
And having been given this vision of who the servant is as a a well-taught teacher, an obedient servant, and a wounded healer, a trusting son, and a vindicated king, we are then given this choice in verses 10 and 11. And the choice is walk in the light of the Lord, walk in the light of the servant, or we can light our own torches and try to get through life on our own strength. It's the choice, uh, a choice to say, the servant alone can save me. Or you can say, I can save myself. It's the choice to trust and to follow the servant or to reject him and be rejected by him. Look at verses 10 and 11 again with that picture in mind. Walk in the light of the Lord or light your own, cho- your own torch. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. If we light, if we light our own torches, if we are unteachable, if we are disobedient, if we are untrusting, if we are constantly seeking to vindicate ourselves, what's the result? It's the last word of of the chapter, torment. The only hope that we have, that we who walk in darkness and are lost, the only hope that we have is to trust in and rely on the Lord. Our hope in this life and in the next is in a person. It's in the servant who was and is the perfect disciple. To follow him is to trust him and to trust the father who he trusted in. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for sending the servant, for sending Jesus to show us that that the disciple of the Lord is, is to be teachable, to be obedient, to be trusting, and who one day will be vindicated. May Jesus give us strength through his spirit to walk in these ways. So brothers and sisters, I say to you this, Jesus is the perfect disciple. Trust in him following his steps. Let's reflect on this picture of our Savior. Allow the Spirit to apply his word to our hearts and then I will, I will pray for us and we'll sing together. Father, we give you praise for Jesus, the perfect disciple. Thank you for his word that sustains us when we're weary. The word of the gospel that lifts us out of weariness and into life. Lord, thank you for his obedience. Obedience even to suffering. His obedience to death, even death on a cross. Father, we thank you that he trusted you in all things and calls us to trust you as well, to to rest our lives on you, to walk in obedience, knowing, Lord, that no one can contend with us if we are in you. Thank you for the hope of vindication, Lord, that all will be made right, that Jesus will be exalted as he deserves, and that none can declare us guilty if we are standing before you. So, Lord, help us to step out of darkness. Help us to extinguish all the torches that we're trying to light to get through this life and just walk in the light that you have called us into, the light of the Lord, the light of Christ. 
the only light that can cause all of our darkness to flee. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Jesus, the light of the world. Amen.